Today's reading from 1 Corinthians 7, 10, uh, 12 to 16. To the married I give this charge, not I, but the Lord. The wife should not separate from her husband, but if she does, she should remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband, and the husband should not divorce his wife. To the rest I say, I, not the Lord, that if any brother has a wife who is an unbeliever, and she consents to live with him, he should not divorce her. If any woman has a husband who is an unbeliever and he consents to live with her, she should not divorce him. For the unbelieving husband is made holy because of his wife, and the unbelieving wife is made holy because of her husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean, but as it is, they are holy. But if the unbelieving parent separates, let it be so. In such cases, the brother or sister is not enslaved. God has called you to peace. For how do you know, wife, whether you will save your husband? Or how do you know, husband, whether you will save your wife? You may be seated. And as you're being seated, let's, let's once more pray again. Yeah, so, Father, we come to you this morning again with a very specific word to us, your people, and we need your spirit to not only understand and apply, but to be faithful in living out your word. And so would you help us? As we react and respond, even to the reading of your word, Lord, would you be gentle and, and, and tender to us, gracious and merciful to us, as we know you always are. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Well, good morning. I, I want to add my welcome to Daniel's welcome. My name's Jake. I, I'm part of the team. It's, it's good to see you this morning. As we continue in our series in, in 1 Corinthians, uh, these three weeks, last week, this week, and, and next week, have felt, do feel, and will feel like life and death at the very same time. They will feel like life. How gracious, how marvelous, how kind that our Lord would speak to our specific situation, specifically where we're at, specifically what we need to hear, that that God would care so much about the married and the divorced and and the single, the widowed, That he would say, I'm not above seeing and speaking into the details of your life and maybe your mess. That's life. But, and we'll experience maybe this more this week than than last week, it will, I I, I believe, also feel at the same time like like death. It, It is quite nice to keep God's commandments to vague generalities, isn't it? This is big picture stuff, overarching things, out of our real life, more in the theoretical. It's much easier, isn't it? I'll give you one example. Today, as you may have guessed, we're talking about divorce. And I know, I know for a fact that in this room, there are divorced men and women, children of divorced parents. Maybe you're married to a woman or man who has been divorced. 
You're a friend, a, a sibling to, to someone who's been divorced before. And because all of these divorces are so much heavier and weightier than the simple word divorce, your stomach sank. Your body had this involuntary trauma response. You're squirming in your chair. And so before we see what God's word says this morning, can I just say something to you? Can you just lean in for a second? It is not by accident, we don't believe in that, it is not by accident that God has you here this morning to hear this message. It's not by accident. God always uses that which feels like death, including death itself, to bring us to more fully be alive in him. So trusting that Jesus is the good shepherd, I want us to move through this text in, in, in two points this morning. First is a word to Christian marriages. And the second is a word to what we're calling mixed marriages. So a word to Christian marriages, if you're, if you're taking notes, and a word to mixed marriages. First, Bibles open if you have them. 1 Corinthians 7, 10 to 11. If you don't have a Bible at all, we have some at the back. Take one, grab it. If you don't have a Bible, keep it. It's our gift to you. 1 Corinthians 7, 10 to 11. A word to, to Christian marriages. We read this. To the married, I give this charge. Not I. And don't you love when Tom reads? Because it sounds like when he's saying I, like he's saying like yes or something. I. But he's, he's saying I. I just love it. Sorry, Tom. I don't know where you're at. Thank you, Tom. Not I, but the Lord. The wife should not separate from her husband. But if she does, she should remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband. And then in verse, uh, at the end of verse 11, and the husband should not divorce his wife. If you remember, if you're new, let, let me remind you, we're looking through these three conditions, these three um, positions in life, the, the, the position of being married, of being divorced, of being single, all through the lens of the big principle that Paul unpacks for us in verses 17 to 24 of this chapter. And the big principle in chapter 7 of 1 Corinthians is this, ready? Whatever you're calling in life, Wherever you find yourself, you can serve God today. That's the controlling principle, if you will. And we're applying it to the married and the divorced and, and the single. And having spoken last week, as Heath did, to, to the married, tempted to withhold their bodies from one another, he now speaks to the married couple in verses 10 and 11, who are tempted to, to divorce one another. What is happening in Corinth? We can imagine that, that behind this temptation to divorce is this usual suspect we found throughout this letter, this, this desire, this, th this motive to appear spiritual, to appear wise, to appear as something. See, last week, they thought it was more spiritual not to have sex with their spouse. Perhaps now the most spiritual thing you can do is not only deprive your spouse of your body, but deprive them of a marriage altogether. Just leave them altogether. In doing so, the Corinthians, as we'll see, were betraying their ignorance as to what had actually taken place in their marriage. I don't know if you saw this in verse 10, but when Paul says, to the married I give this charge, not I but the Lord, and then proceeds to eventually say, don't, don't get divorced. He's invoking, I think, 
The, the entirety of Jesus' teaching, the, the Lord's command on this topic, on divorce. He's saying, you've heard this before. Jesus taught this. You know this. What did Jesus say about divorce? What are his followers to think? See, there are actually two sermons written this week. The, the first sermon written was, was Jesus' teaching on divorce. And then I added that to, to this sermon here. And it was 10,000 words. And I thought, I love you and I won't do that to you. But really quickly, if we had much more time this morning, we would unpack Matthew 19 and Mark 10 and Matthew 5 and Luke 16, where Jesus teaches explicitly on divorce. How we could dive into the, the cultural context involving two different rabbis, one named Hillel and the other Shammai, and, and you would maybe be home in time for dinner. Maybe. But instead, let it suffice this morning for me to summarize, and there's always danger in doing this, but I'll do it nonetheless. Summarize Jesus' teaching on divorce like this, and I'll put it on the screen behind me, in three really simple points. First, Jesus taught that marriage is sacred, is a big stinking deal, and not to be trifled with. It is a divine union, Jesus taught, ordained by God. Therefore, point number two, Jesus taught that believers should not cause a divorce, a divorce by breaking their wedding vows. And third, Jesus taught that should a divorce take place, it must not be a groundless divorce. And we can summarize these grounds as falling under the categories of sexual immorality or abandonment. Again, there's a lot there, and you have probably 20 more questions, and I'd love to talk with you following the gathering or later this week. But that's, you know, in a quick snapshot, what Jesus taught about divorce. What matters for us right now, in, in the context of 1 Corinthians, is that Paul is bringing the Lord's high view of marriage and the Lord's command concerning divorce to bear on the church in Corinth. See, divorce in Corinth, believe it or not, was actually much easier than it was today. Divorce in Corinth, in fact, in the Roman world, was not a matter of, of paperwork, but a matter of proximity. Look at verse 10 and 11 with me. And Paul alludes to the practice of divorce in the Greco-Roman culture, even in the words he chooses. He says, the wife should not separate from her husband. Well, how does a wife divorce her husband in Corinth? Just walks out the door. Separates, physically separates herself from her husband. Then Paul says in verse 11, and the husband should not divorce his wife. Now, now this word divorce could also be translated as dismiss. So, so how does a husband divorce uh, his wife in Corinth? He, he dismisses her from the home. The woman walks out. And the husband, because he owns everything, just dismisses his wife. That's divorce in Corinth. And Paul's saying, don't do this. Don't, don't do this. In fact, Paul's saying, Jesus said, don't do this. And, and the Old Testament to the New Testament is saying, don't do this. Don't do this. Don't do this. It's not a question Paul wants them to know of, can you get a divorce? Jesus did not say, what God has joined together, no man can separate. He said, Matthew 19, verse 6, what therefore God has joined together, maybe you've heard this at the last wedding you were at, let man not separate. So I want to take a moment, I want to pause and speak to those in the room right now who are married, Christian to Christian, believer to believer. 
If you're single and you want to get married, this applies to you. If you're a person who wants to support a Christian marriage, this applies to you. And so, so listen, threatening divorce with every misstep, every disagreement, it, it reveals that you have failed to grasp what happened when you made those vows before the Lord. Keeping divorce close by as an exit strategy, maybe in the form of, of a literal go bag, in case things don't turn out the way you'd like, fails to grasp the divine union that was consummated when you first made love to your spouse on your wedding night. Hear me, and I want to be so clear here, hear me. As we said, there are biblical grounds for divorce. And if you're in a marriage right now where you're being abused or your spouse is a serial adulterer, our counsel to you as elders and as a church is not chin up, Jesus is with you. No. It is first, find a safe place to go. And if you don't have one, we have one for you. Second, from that place of safety, let's together discern what happens next. Is your spouse repentant? Do the police need to be contacted? How can we care for you and if you have them, your children in this time? But if that's not you, if that's not you, if you're just thinking, you know, I think I'd just be better off without them, perhaps even more spiritual, more of use to the kingdom, right? You need to hear this morning the difficulties you're enduring in marriage. And listen, I, I've been married 10 years. Some of you have been married longer. The difficulties you're enduring in marriage. And no one here is naive as to what marriage is. The difficulties you're enduring in marriage, whether caused by you or caused by your spouse, this is the anvil that the Lord is calling you to remain on. And the voice that's telling you to jump, to get out. Your marriage is the context where he is forming and shaping you more like Christ. But, but hear me, and this has served me well in 10 years of marriage. That forming and shaping can only take place if, if you agree and you make the decision to burn the ships. Do you know the phrase, burn the ships? You heard that before? Is that new to you? Maybe you have, maybe you haven't. But you know where it comes from. 1519, a Spanish expedition lands in Mexico. The crew, exhausted and on the brink of death, now faces the daunting task of bushwhacking through the jungle as they set out in the new world. And there on the beach are their boats, tempting them, whispering to them, go back to the, the old world where it's easier. It's easier. And so what does Cortez, their leader, do? He burns the boats. He burns the boats. He burns the boats. There's only one way forward. It is through the jungle, and it's not the way you came. Friends, today is as good as day as any to, to burn the ships in your marriage. And I want you, if you're married right now, maybe grab your spouse's hand, maybe put your arm over their shoulder, maybe even look them in the eyes. 
And I want you, as you think about this, to repent of, of that daydream where it's you by yourself or with someone younger and funnier, someone who really gets you in that quiet apartment with no kids screaming at you. Maybe today you need to head home and get rid of that literal go bag under your bed. Maybe you need to go home and sit down with your wife, sit down with your husband, and ask for forgiveness for all the times that you have threatened divorce as a weapon, your finger hovering above the remote, threatening to go nuclear. Paul says, Christian, with all the caveats we've talked about, all the, all, all the things we've talked about, Christian, don't separate. Don't divorce. You can serve the Lord right now in your marriage. But then he looks at the rest. He actually calls them the rest. In verse 12, did you see that? He says, now to the rest I say. And he looks now at what we could call mixed marriages. He says in verses 12 to 13, to the rest I say, I, not the Lord, that if any brother has a wife who is an unbeliever and she consents to live with him, he should not divorce her. If any woman has a husband who is an unbeliever and he consents to live with her, she should not divorce him. First group, so we're tracking together. Corinthians and Christian marriages tempted to believe they'd be more spiritual, they'd be, they'd be better off if they were single. Second group, Christians married to an unbelieving spouse tempted to believe, I think, that to remain married to this unbelieving spouse would defile them, would be unclean towards them. And, and you can see how they would believe this. Remember, a few weeks ago we read... In 1 Corinthians 6, verses 15 to 16, do you remember this? It'll be on the screen. Paul wrote, and the church heard, Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make the members of a prostitute? Never, Paul says. Or do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? For as it is written, the two will become one flesh. Here's the logic. It, it, Simple. If sleeping with a prostitute is a matter of defiling the very temple of God, is not sleeping with a pagan who probably worshipped at that temple where that prostitute worked, is that not the same thing? And in one of the most beautiful gospel reversals we find in all the New Testament, Paul says, actually, no. Look at verse 14. Verse 14 is amazing. Look at it, please. For the unbelieving husband, what happens? Is made holy because of his wife. And the unbelieving wife is made holy because of her husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean. But as it is, they are holy. Here's what he's saying. N not only is the believing wife not defiled by her unbelieving husband, and not only is the believing husband not defiled by their unbelieving wife, Paul says they are made holy. And to show you what I think Paul's getting at, I want to, if we can, leave 1 Corinthians and go to Romans. Maybe like, why are we going to Romans? Just trust me, okay? Trust me, trust me. In Romans, in Romans 3 actually, 
And the argument of Romans up until this point, up until Romans 3 is, and this is like a quick and dirty sort of like overview of Romans. And so if I miss something, we can talk about it later. Romans 1, Gentiles, pagans, condemned before the Lord, and Paul lists some of their despicable behavior. And then in Romans 2, Paul anticipates some Jewish smugness, right? He anticipates people like, oh, good thing we're not like them. Right, the man who's like, I'm not like him, the, the sinner, right? Paul anticipates that and says, actually, Israel, Jews, you, you too stand condemned. Your works can't save you. That's Romans 2. And so when we come to Romans 3, the question that is being asked is this, the good one. If being made right with God is not a matter of circumcision, not a matter of ethnicity, but a matter of the heart, if it is a matter of the spirit and not of the law, the question is, and Paul anticipates this, then what advantage has the Jew? And Paul will respond to this rhetorical question in Romans 3 by saying things like this. Romans 3 verse 2. Actually, there are a ton of advantages. The Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God. How's that for an advantage? Romans 9, 4 to 5. To the Jewish people belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs, and from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ. In other words, they had every advantage, every blessing. What does this have to do with our text today? Here's what Paul's saying. He's saying... When you remain in that marriage with your unbelieving spouse, when you persist, you, you bring with you as the very temple of the living God a whole host of blessings, a whole host of advantages. You can't bring salvation with you. That's not your work. That's not your job. But you bring with you in your very body a whole host of blessings. For example, your spouse now gets to be married to someone who is, according to Romans 12, verse 10, trying to outdo them in showing honor. How's that for a blessing? I'll take that. Ephesians 5. If the wife is the unbeliever, the husband is now loving her. Not only when he feels like it, not only, only according to how he thinks fit, but she is the beneficiary of a husband who is now loving her, striving to love her through radical self-sacrifice, radical self-denial. If the husband is the unbeliever, he now has a spouse aiming, as 1 Peter 3 says, to be subject to her husband. So that even if some do not obey the word, even if the husband isn't a Christian, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives. When they see your respectful and pure Conduct. Hear me. The unbelieving spouse is not and cannot be saved by their marriage to a believer. There's no salvation by proxy. In the same way that no one is saved by their ethnicity. But the unbelieving spouse ought to be the recipient of all the blessings of Christ that come with sharing a bed with the very Spirit of God. Do you see that, Christ City? Paul goes further and he says, actually, otherwise your children would be unclean, but as it is, they are holy. Everyone, 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 including the kids, get in on this blessing when mom or dad comes to know Jesus. Some of you know, 
and I've talked about this before, that I grew up in a home where, where my mom was a follower of Jesus and my dad wasn't. And you can imagine all the complexities and difficulties that come with that. And I imagine at times it would have seemed easier to both my mom and my dad to kind of just like, just call it quits. We're just too different. Just have two different beliefs. It's just a bit easier to call it quits. But because my mom in particular remained, because my dad remained, not only did my dad get a front row seat to the work of the Spirit in her life, so did us four kids. We had a front row seat to my mom's prayer life. I imagine coming down the stairs each morning to, to see my mom sitting in her chair. Maybe you have a chair like that, her prayer chair. Her devotional open, reading and praying, interceding for her husband, interceding for her children. We got to witness my mom's radical hospitality. Just a few weeks ago, someone uh, at Christ City Church South Vancouver sent me a, an article, a, a newspaper clipping from our local community paper that I grew up in. And it was, a, it was a farewell tribute to our family, which is a very strange thing. It's a very, very weird, weird thing. We were moving from Calgary to Toronto. And this woman wanted the whole community to know what a loss it would be for Lake Bonavista that the Lefebvre family, but in particular, Lori Lefebvre, was, was leaving. And so she wrote this, this tribute, and she told of how my mom had welcomed her into her home when she was overwhelmed, invited her and a host of other ladies over for coffee to, to study the word of, of, of God together. It's an incredible story and picture of, of radical hospitality. And to this day, to this day, radical hospitality continues to define my parents as my father now follows Christ. To this day, radical hospitality continues to define the lives of us four kids. See, little did we know, and this is what we need to see, little did we know that we were being molded and shaped, being made holy long before we ever came to Christ. Did you see it, Christ City? Did you see the blessing? And so I, I want to take a moment, and again, I want to speak specifically to those who are here this morning who are currently married to someone who doesn't know Jesus. And I don't speak, I hope you can tell, as an outsider. I grew up in a family where one of the parents didn't know Jesus. This is my lived and felt experience. The word of the Lord to you this morning is so clear. It's to persist. To persist. To persist. Knowing that your radical conversion could lead to your spouse walking out on you. Paul says in verse 15, let it be so. In such cases, the brother or sister is not enslaved. God has called you to peace. To persist with no guarantees that your children or your husband will ever come to be saved. For how do you know, wife, whether you will save your husband? Or how do you know, husband, whether you will save your wife? As an aside, this is not a proof text or an escape for you to date and marry a non-Christian. as an aside, if my mom were here right now and she was speaking to you specifically as a young woman, she, she would say to you and she would plead with you, avoid the heartache. Avoid the heartbreak. Marry someone who knows and loves Jesus. Don't use my story as an excuse to marry an unbeliever. Paul says the same thing. Friends, you can serve God in a mixed marriage. 
How? How? As we saw last week and and two weeks ago, only by abiding in Christ, only by staying with Christ. See, the, the wonder of the gospel is that you're not alone when you abide in Christ. Not only do you get Christ, not only do you get his very presence, he's promised you more than just the hope of making holy your spouse or your children. He's actually promised you a bigger, more expansive family. And I want to end, and I'm ending, I promise. I want to end by taking us to Mark 10. Matthew, Mark, Luke. Mark 10. In Mark 10, we find, well, we find Jesus' teaching on divorce. But more than that, you might be familiar with the fact that we also find in Mark 10 the story of the rich young man or the rich young ruler who comes to Jesus, right? Comes to Jesus having obeyed all the commands, done everything, but then Jesus, as he does, presses on the man's idol. Gently, in love, presses on his idol. We read in verse 21, and Jesus, looking at him, loved him, didn't do this maliciously, carelessly, flippantly, loved him and said to him, you lack one thing. Go, sell all that you have and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and come follow me. In verse 22, disheartened by the saying, he went away sorrowful for he had great possessions. This interaction leads Jesus to remark twice about the difficulty of entering the kingdom of God, how hard it is, which leads Peter to say this in classic Peter form. See, Jesus, we have left everything and followed you. And Jesus said, verse 29, Truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions and in the age to come eternal life. Peter can only see the cost. See? We have left everything and followed you. Maybe you're here and you have an unbelieving spouse or or, or you're counseling someone in a mixed marriage or you're the children who by the grace of God were were saved from one believing mom or, or dad. Maybe all you can see this morning is the cost. See, Jesus? Don't you see Jesus? Don't you know Jesus? We have left everything to follow you. Do you know the cost, Jesus? Can you count, Jesus? The cost is real. Following Jesus is real. Let's not lie. Let's not dance around it. Jesus says he comes to even divide families. But this morning, you don't need to be reminded of the cost. You know the cost. You need to be reminded of the promise in verse 29 to 30. Jesus says, There is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel to follow me who will not receive, and here's the word, a hundredfold now in this time. And you might be thinking, yeah, Jake, that's future heaven stuff. 
No. What does Jesus say? Now in this time, hundredfold. Jesus is saying this, and, and I can't believe it. The family you will get in the church, among my people, these people, these homes, will far outweigh what you lost. And while you might feel awkward or attacked or isolated in your own home, there will be homes, even lands, open to you. Everywhere you go, you will find your spiritual family praying for your biological one. And should your spouse abandon you, the church, brothers or sisters or mother or father or children, the church remains as a tangible sign that Christ will not. That Christ has not. This same refrain will sound next week as well, but I want to just pause for a moment. And I want us to see in Mark 10, can you put it back up on the screen? In Mark 10, Jesus makes this promise and then we might ask, well, well, how does he intend to fulfill that promise? Do you know the answer? You. Through, through you. Us, the church. Here's where most of us are at right now. We're kind of here. We have our, our family. We have our routines. And we kind of like our routines. For the past two years, it's how we've been living life. Can I just really gently say, really gently, in love, if you're here, it's time to move here. And if you're here, it's time to move here. Jesus' plan for fulfilling Mark 10, 28 to 30, is not abstract. It's not through like some pixie dust he's going to throw out there like, oh, now I feel like I have homes and mothers and brothers and sisters. Oh, no. It's through us. It's through the church. Which means when you're not here and when you don't press in, and when you don't give your life for the betterment of your brother or sister in Christ, then we all lose. We all lose. How can we persist in all the circumstances Christ has us in? Friends, only if we are convinced by the Spirit of God in the core of our being that we have everything, in fact, a hundredfold we could ever need in Christ. Only when our circumstances stop being the chief determinant of our identity. Only when we've heard and believed and believed the woo of Christ who whispers to our heart, I will never leave you nor forsake you. Indeed, I am with you always to the end of the age. This is Christ's word to us this morning, Christ City. Let's pray. And so, Father, we come this morning... Yes, all of us united in Christ. All of us the same before the cross. All of us one in Christ, and yet we come with our own complexities. Our own past hurts. Our own present trials. And we ask you to meet with us. As we prepare our hearts to respond in the Lord's Supper, would you, would you meet with us? We invite the Holy Spirit to come and to minister to us either on our own as we sit or through a brother or sister in Christ. We confess, Lord, that we cannot be this community, this hundredfold community on our own.
We need you. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Hey, everyone. This is Jake, lead pastor of Christ City Church, East Vancouver. And I want to let you know about a few things. First, if you're not a part of a local church, let me invite you to join us each Sunday morning at 2605 East Pender Street in East Vancouver for worship, word, and sacrament. Second, if you are new and you want to get connected, let me say welcome. Christ City Church East Vancouver is a neighborhood church committed to making missional disciples for the sake of the neighborhood. If you want to be a part of or hear more of what we believe God has called us to do in East Vancouver, please reach out to me at jake at christcitychurch.ca.